Welcome back to the Binge Eating Dietitian Podcast. My name is Joe. I'm a registered dietitian and I'm here to smash the taboo of binge eating. I am very excited to be recording this introduction today because I have lots of news for you. I have lots of updates. So firstly, as you can probably tell from the title of this episode and the length of this episode, this is a different kind of chat that we're going to be having today. I was invited to speak on the Binge Eating Therapist YouTube channel. The Binge Eating Therapist is Sarah Dosange. She is a UK-based psychotherapist. She has the best YouTube channel. She is wonderful in the binge eating recovery space. Sarah invited me to talk on the topic of food and nutrition in overcoming binge eating. And I thought, hey, Sarah, can I take that audio file? Because I think that my audience will really benefit from this conversation as well. As you know, I don't usually have guests on the podcast. That's because I found that when I'm just sitting down with you, just me and my mic, talking with you, I can give you the best, clearest, most concise advice for overcoming binge eating and smashing the taboo of binge eating. But having said that, I really did enjoy this conversation with Sarah. So if you would like me to start to have guests on the podcast, please let me know. I would love to know your thoughts. So please stay tuned for that conversation. Even though it is an interview of me, I just love that two binge eating professionals from two different disciplines were able to sit sit down together and pick each other's brains on this incredibly complex topic. Just before I get into that though, there is a couple more updates for you. Secondly, I am going to be releasing one episode a week, at least for the rest of the summer. I have a ton of episodes now, and I know that you may have not gotten a chance to listen to them all. So maybe this will give you a chance to catch up if I slow it down to just one episode a week. And lastly, I am so pleased to tell you that I am going to be releasing a series of podcast episodes, so completely free information to you over the next six weeks. And the topic of this series is going to be supporting somebody through their binge eating recovery. Because I've noticed a trend in my emails lately. There are a lot of you who are listening to me because there's somebody in your life who is struggling with binge eating and you want to do your best to support that person. So I am going to start that series from the 11th of July and there will be six episodes released on a weekly basis um, from then. So I have the episodes kind of planned out, but if there is any aspect of supporting a loved one through eating disorders in general and specifically binge eating, then please let me know and I will try my best to include it in the series. And even if you listen to my podcast because you're struggling with binge eating yourself, I think that you will find the series really helpful too, because you'll get to see it from an outside point of view. You'll get to see it from the perspective of your loved one. So those three updates again. Firstly, we have a conversation with Sarah, the binge eating therapist coming up. Secondly, I'm going to be releasing one episode a week, which will be every Sunday night or Monday morning, by the way. And thirdly, I am going to be doing a free series for you guys on supporting somebody with binge eating. So if you have any requests for something specific that I should cover in that series, please do let me know. 
All right, without further ado, let's get into the conversation that I had with Sarah Dosange, the binge eating therapist. Hope you enjoy and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here on the channel with us. Hey, Sarah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So I've been really excited to have you on for a while because I think you have an enormous amount of information that people watching this would benefit enormously from. I also think there's a lot of myths and fears around dietitians that you're going to be telling us what to eat or you're going to put us on a diet. And one of the things I love about you and your work, having followed you on Instagram for a while, is I know that you are very much about food freedom, intuitive eating, finding a way to become more in tune with your own body. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you ended up specializing in binge eating as a dietitian? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I guess this goes back to when I first qualified as a dietitian. I'm a dietitian now, I think about seven years. And I spent the first portion of that time working in a general clinical setting. So like I was working in hospitals, I was working with the patients with all different illnesses. And it was really interesting work. But something that really struck me was that no matter what illness somebody has or what state of health somebody is in, their relationship with food is the most important thing. And it's the, it's the thing that was the common denominator amongst everybody. No matter what illness they had or what state of health they were in, everybody has their own personal relationship with food. And it's a very intimate thing. And it's something that's not widely explored. So in my training, I did like learned about nutrition to the nth degree and the very minutiae of it. But it just got me thinking about what is the significance of having all that information and being able to impart that with somebody else if their relationship with food is quite distorted or warped for whatever reason that that is. And, you know, this is not widely documented. I can't say what percentage of people have a disrupted relationship with food, but in my working experience over the last seven years, it is quite high. And it's not just people who use Instagram or it's not just people in eating disorder centers. It's across the board. I couldn't agree more. Everywhere I go, people, they pull me aside to tell me about their relationship with food the minute they know what I do. Yeah, exactly. So that's what it just made me step back and say, right, okay, I can use nutrition to treat illness and to treat certain states of health. But if we can put more focus into this underlying issue of the relationship with food, then that's going to be more beneficial than anything. That's going to put the power into the individual's hands to manage their own health and well-being themselves. Once they feel empowered to, to, you know, to be able to do that because their relationship with food is better. Mm -hmm. That's really refreshing to hear. So that got you interested in people's relationship with food as opposed to just the what they're eating. Um, what was it about the binge eating then that you thought that's going to be my area where I want to narrow down and work with them people? Yeah, again, it was a very similar principle. So what I did then, what so I, I was working clinically, I decided that I want to focus more on eating disorders. I thought that would be a good entry into uncovering this um, this fascination with the relationship with food overall. So I did a postgrad in eating disorders in uh, Leeds Beckett University with Ursula Philpott, who is a very well-known um, eating disorders dietitian in the UK. And we did lots about 
the other eating disorders on the spectrum, and I do believe eating disorders are on a spectrum. I don't think we need to necessarily box off individual ones. But what I find most interesting is that people who have anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa tend to tend to fit into more traditional eating disorder services. There seems to be a place for those people to go and get help. But when it comes to binge eating, it's a bit more of a gray area and it's not always diagnosed. In fact, it's diagnosed only a handful of times, mainly because of the shame and guilt that's imparted around the diagnosis. So people don't feel comfortable talking to their GP about it. The lack of knowledge as well. Like it's only been around for 10 years as a diagnosis. I think a lot of GPs are not particularly aware of it. They don't think binge eating disorder. They think, oh, maybe they should go to insert national slimming club. Exactly. Exactly. So I wanted, I knew that binge eating is the most common eating disorder in the UK, I think worldwide as well. And I just want, I wanted to focus more on the people who identify as struggling with binge eating, but may not fit into any kind of box or any criteria on the eating disorder spectrum. Mm-hmm. Because those are the people who walk among us. Those are our friends. Those are our parents. Those are, our, you know, the people in our community, not necessarily somebody who has a diagnosable eating disorder. So I think for me, when I was really struggling, the idea of going to a dietitian. I don't think to begin with, it would have actually occurred to me that that would be an option as a path to healing. But if I think about it, I also believed at the time that I knew a lot about nutrition. I read extensively on the subject. I was interested in wellness. I kind of felt like I knew it all. So I think in my mind, I would think, I know this is very presumptuous of me, that I knew everything and I couldn't imagine what a dietitian was going to tell me that I didn't know because I thought I know how to eat the problem is that I'm not doing it do you come across that much or what are your thoughts around that response yeah and this is something that I hear an awful lot people will say to me I know what you're going to tell me to do it's just that I don't know how to do it and I'll ask them okay what am I going to tell you to do and they might say well you're going to tell me to make sure I eat five fruit and veg a day and cut out all refined sugar and I don't know, stop eating by 7 p.m. at nighttime. And to that response, I would say, that is not what I'm going to tell you to do. Your idea of what good nutrition is, is very different to what my, you know, my years of working and years of research, my definition of what good nutrition is. And I would ask you just to think about the, the, the possibility that you now know too much and you know too much information, information about nutrition that it's become disabling to you, that you no longer know how to apply it to yourself. So together we would take a step back and we would investigate what it is that you know, and I would help you to see that maybe this is not, not as accurate or not as helpful as you thought that it would be. You know, I think I think that people have this perception that when you go to nutrition school, that you um, you just watch one nutrition Netflix documentary after the other, and then you're qualified. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, N- studying nutrition is very complex, and you know, I'd I'd it's interesting if you ask somebody who's actually studied it, 
if it's as interesting as it's made out to be in the mainstream media and on Instagram, it is really not. Nutrition science is very laborious. It's very time consuming. It is very intense. And as I mentioned, you get into the very minutiae of, you know, the biochemical pathways of 20 vitamins. And then also, isn't it also about how they interact with one another as well? So it's not only learning these separate things, but then the combining of these things, right? The combining of these things and how it changes in different, um, in dif- in different realms of health and disease as well. It is incredibly complicated. So I understand that you have an appreciation of nutrition and you enjoy reading about it. But I would just ask you to think about that maybe your idea of what good nutrition is, is not, is, is, is warped and is, has not helped to bring you closer to a good relationship with food. It has taken you further away. Mm-hmm. Touche. I think the other thing then, so you talk a lot about relationship with food. I think I reached a point probably after quite for a long time, for many years, I was focused on just, if I could just get my eating right, I just need to change my behavior around food. And at some point I started to realize exactly that my relationship with food was a big part of what was going on. So then, and like with the intuitive eating principles, I always say that the last one, right? Principle 10 is gentle nutrition. And I often say, well, they put that last for a reason. So I think when I got in that stage of my recovery, the thought of prioritizing nutrition, I would have been afraid would have derailed me. Does that make sense to sort of over-focus on nutrition? Where's the line where it's healthy to have an eye on nutrition? And where's the line where it then almost tips you back into your eating disorder? Yeah, it's a very tight line, right? But the thing is, and maybe this wasn't pointed out to you at the time, what you were, the way that you were eating when you made this realization There was already lots of aspects about that way of eating that was very nutritious. You are not starting from zero. People come to me and they say, I eat so unhealthy. I eat so bad. I'm eating all of the wrong things. And to that, I say, okay, write down the last 10 things that you've eaten. And almost 100% of the time, I can pick out lots of elements of those foods that are incredibly nutritious. So again, it's the warped view of what good nutrition is. If you are eating a range of foods, a variety of foods from all the different food groups on a pretty regular basis, then your diet is nutritious. I'm not saying that we can't tweak it and maybe, you know, make it more so and add in some more things, but I, I, I find that it's helpful to reassure people at the beginning that your, your diet is not as bad as you are making it out to be at this very moment if you've had a slice of sorry I was going to say if you've had a slice of bread today then you've gotten some starchy carbs you've gotten some b vitamins you've gotten quite a chunk of protein there mm-hmm. what is that, not nutritious about that? that's sorry. true when you when you said that I felt I felt seen um actually <laughs> I think for me I, I would have told you that my diet was terrible and because the binges were all on the ultra processed foods they were on foods that made me feel horrible but actually between the binges my food was probably pretty varied I didn't have really strict rules but I ate a lot of other things as well and I think that's a real tendency as well and you probably see it in the clients that you work with to label everything as good good or bad 
Like we're either trying to be perfect with our food or we're in complete chaos. So I'm guessing or assuming then that your work is about trying to help people to find some middle ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trying to blur those two groups together, that good and bad. Let's, Let's find reason to take those labels away. What is so bad? You mentioned ultra processed foods just now, which is a term that's not really scientifically well established. Um, It has come out of um, some research that's quite dubious. So even that term is is quite harmful. Because, I mean, could you give an example of what an ultra processed food was that you were binging on in that time? I guess I'm assuming things like, um, the first ones that came to mind is chocolate. Okay. Um, I suppose any of the sweet foods, so it might be cakes, ice cream, all those kinds of foods. For me, it was always around sugar, my binges. So it tended to be foods that were high in sugar and packaged. I think what, this is a good question, actually, (laughs) even if I do say so myself, even if it's my question, how do we talk about these different foods? Because I often find I don't want to use healthy and not healthy. I don't think that's helpful. So sometimes I'll talk about process, but I hear what you're saying. Like, at what line do we say that something's processed at what level? How do you differentiate between these different types of foods when you want to have a conversation about them? Yeah, that is a really good question. I'm glad that you asked it. And, you know, I appreciate that working with clients, like they'll say terms like healthy or good or bad. And I, I, you know, I empathize and I say, I know that you're using those words because it's hard to find the right language for this. But what I have found to be most neutral and most helpful in these situations is to label this group of foods as snack foods. They are just snack foods. They are foods that are not a meal. We will, you can not say that chocolate is ever considered a meal, but it's considered a snack. That's pretty, yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. I think that now I'm thinking, well, because fruit could also be a snack food if you have it as a snack. Yeah, exactly. It goes in the same category. Oh, oh, does it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I felt something in me go, oh, we can't put, we can't put fruit in the same category as chocolate. Isn't that interesting? That's with all the work I've done. It's still there. (laughs) Think of it like this. If you make, you mentioned cake was one of these um, foods of yours and you mentioned foods that are packaged. If you buy like, a brownie in a like plastic packaging for example I'm guessing you would label that as ultra processed what if you made the brownies at home yourself yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't talk I wouldn't think about that as ultra processed but I don't bake okay (laughs) (laughs) and I would also this is where my mind would go as well it's interesting now how it's trying to put things into categories I would think like if I got a brownie from the bakery even but and it's the kind of brownie that would go off in a day I wouldn't, in my mind, have called that ultra-processed foods. Okay. But then you get the brownies in packagings that can last a couple of months. For me, there's something, maybe as I'm trying to talk about these foods, to differentiate them in some way. Yeah. But then there's this idea of, like, why are we differentiating them? Maybe sometimes we need to, but maybe we're doing it a lot of the time when we don't need to. Absolutely. I mean, and think about, this. it's the same with salad. Like, bagged salads are quite popular now, right? You buy your bag of spinach leaves or whatever you choose is that is that more processed than buying a head of lettuce that's not in a bag no (laughs) (laughs) 
even though the bag lettuce lasts longer. The it's, bag lettuce lasts, lasts. Oh, right. If it's because in my mind, then I was thinking again, this is the little, I have these little tidbits of things about nutrition that I hear in places. And then I put all these facts together and I'm like, this is stuff I know. So one of the ones I thought of then when you mentioned bagged uh, lettuce is that if these leaves or your vegetables are cut up, isn't there like an oxidation process that's going on that's then a, having an impact on the, I'm feeling like an idiot now, but the quality <laughs> of the foods? Yeah, no, not, um, I, I understand. I understand where, you know, that this is coming from. In the case of bag lettuce, and this is something I wasn't planning on talking about today, but in that, in that case, um, they last longer when the bag is unopened because of the air that's pumped into the bag just FYI. It has nothing to do with the quality of the food. It's just the air that they use in the, in the bags that helps to keep them fresh for long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good to know. So yeah. along that line then, what are the things you come up against again and again with people who struggle with binge eating? Um, the common things that people believe are true about nutrition that you would refute? Okay. Where do I begin? <laughs> Wherever you like. Yeah. There, you know, there there is an awful lot. I mean, the, firstly, there's the whole camp of people trying to eat in a way that they feel that is healthier or more wholesome or more virtuous than others. Intermittent fasting is, is a popular one at the moment, just came into my head. People trying to leave extremely long gaps between eating their last meal and eating their next meal the next day. And They'll come to me and say, I'm trying to do it. I know what to do, but I just can't. And I end up binge binge eating before I should be eating again. And in that case, I would say, look, there is some evidence for intermittent fasting. Okay. And I am, I'm an evidence-based practitioner. I will always look at what literature is available. And there is some evidence to say that intermittent fasting can be beneficial for health. However, if it's not working for you, that's all you need to know. You don't need any more justification. You don't need to read up on it more or try altering your fasting window or, you know, get more inspiration. No, you just need to notice that this is not working for you. And that is all that's important. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing, how anybody else is eating. What matters is how it works for you. Yeah. I also wonder as well, like with the uh, intermittent fasting, they talk about there's some health benefits, but that's just looking at physical health, I'm assuming. Yeah. There's a psychological impact, certainly for me, mm-hmm. there's a psychological impact that the minute I say I can't or I mustn't eat something, like something is triggered off for me. And like all I can think about is that it sounds... When I talk about it like this, I know it doesn't stand up to rational scrutiny. And I heard someone on a podcast once talking about that as a really immature process. And I remember kind of bristling a bit at that. A little bit like this part of me that goes, I should be able to be okay with that. But I found over and over again, I'm not. And I'm just trying to find a way to respect that part of me so I can manage it and it doesn't derail me. Okay. Yeah, it's it's when there's too much noise feeding into this, right? Like all that is important is you right now, or, you know, the client that you're working with, they are the most important people in, in the world. It, it, 
it doesn't matter if other people can do it or what the evidence suggests. If it's making you binge and it's your binge eating is getting worse by doing it, it is not for you. And you don't need to justify it in any other way. Thank you, Joe. I'll take that on board. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any others that come to mind that people will often think that they know and you kind of have to say, mm, not necessarily true? Clean eating is another popular one. That's I don't really hear the term clean eating as much anymore. I think it's rebranded to just trying to be healthy or trying to be wholesome. People will try to reduce their meals down to some very core ingredients. So they'll have like a plant-based, sorry, um, an animal protein. They'll have um, a starchy carb and they'll have a ton of veg in their meal. And on paper, you're right. Like that is the main constitution of a meal. However, where is the taste? Where is the satisfaction? Where is the flavor? I know that people have good intentions trying to limit their ingredients to as few as possible, but we need to get some enjoyment from food. And for the most part, having plain chicken, plain rice and broccoli is not a very enjoyable meal. Mm -hmm. I think I often see something similar where people will let's say they'll get themselves a bit of meat and a whole load of vegetables, an enormous amount of vegetables, and they'll eat it and they'll go, but I'm not hungry and I still want to eat because I'm full up. And I, again, I don't have nutrition training, but I often think of that as you can't fool your brain. Your brain knows how much energy you consumed. You might be able to briefly convince your stomach that it's filled up there, but hunger's not, well, I think stomach hunger is only a very small part of hunger, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You, you need to get that mental satisfaction as well. And, and you can, again, this is a good example of where the basis is good. You have all of the components of a meal here, but why not add in some butter on your potatoes or some sauce on your chicken or make it into more of a creamy curry dish than just, just these plain components. It is okay to use ingredients like fat, cream, butter, those foods are not bad, but because we live in a world where, you know, if you're tracking using my fitness pal, those will be the first ingredients to go because they're the ones that are most calorific or contain most fat. Those foods have a purpose. Fat is very important. Fat gives the meal flavor, helps you to feel fuller. It helps you to feel more satisfied. It is not a redundant food. Can I chip in? Can I chip in with a bit of nutrition knowledge about fat? You can tell me if I'm correct. That fat's (laughs) also very important in your diet because there are vitamins that we eat that are fat soluble. And if we're low on fat intake, our body can't absorb these vitamins. Is that true? Yeah, that is bang on. Vitamins A, D, E, and K are all fat soluble. Um, (laughs) It's not something you have to pay great attention to. Once you're having some fat in your diet, then those vitamins will be absorbed. If you're having a very low fat diet, which some people unfortunately are, then we would need to work on increasing your fat content overall. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, so something I, I come up a lot are people who talk about intolerances. So mm-hmm. I'm not talking about allergies. I'm not talking about life-threatening um, things, just things where people will say that certain foods don't agree with them. And yet those are the foods they go to when they binge. 
Do you know how yeah. you talk about that with people, how you think about that? I know that there is not a simple, easy answer. I mean, unless you have one, then please give it to me. Yeah, sure. Um, so I I do I do a, a, a bi-weekly podcast and I've done two episodes on this subject. Um, I did one on someone who is binge eating on gluten-containing foods when they're on a gluten-free diet and another one on how to manage IBS when you struggle with binge eating because both of those fall into that into that realm both of those are you're you're convinced you have some kind of intolerance and you try to either cut out that food or reduce that food in the hope of helping what i would say to that is i mean i, I hope this isn't a cop out answer but if you can do it with professional support i would urge you to do so because by cutting out the food that you think you're intolerant to, you probably will feel a bit better in the short term because that's what happens when you think that you're doing something good for your health. It's almost like a bit of a placebo effect. But if you think you're allergic to wheat and you cut out all wheat products in your diet, how are you going to manage that long term? You've just cut out bread, pasta and other grains. That's a, that's a lot of food that you have just omitted from your diet. Mm -hmm. So why not work with a professional to pinpoint exactly what is causing these intolerances and manage them with some guidance, with somebody who's helping you through it and not you just trying to guess what you should do next. I would fear that somebody will get a, a very restrictive diet quite quickly if you keep imposing your own restrictions on yourself due to foods you think you're intolerant to. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really difficult subject. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in things like the placebo or even the nocebo effect, how yeah. we expect food to impact us. I remember a couple of years ago, I was driving somewhere and I stopped at a service station and I really wanted some hot food. And the only like hot food outlet there was a McDonald's. McDonald's has never really been my go-to, even in my binging days. I've always been like, I just don't really enjoy McDonald's, but I was really hungry. And I thought, I want something hot. I'm just going to take the consequences. So I went and I had, I took my uh, McDonald's. It must have been the beginning of COVID actually, because I wasn't allowed to sit in. I had to sit in my car and I was sitting in my car and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to eat this really mindfully. And I'm just going to be, I'm not going to distract. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to sit here and eat the food. I ate the food. I really enjoyed it. And I actually felt really good. I felt really satisfied. I didn't feel sluggish. And it was a really extraordinary experience for me because like historically, whenever I've eaten food from those kinds of places, I tend to feel at least a bit sluggish and heavy afterwards. I didn't. I felt great. There's something I think, certainly in my experience around what we expect food to feel like that then can have a big impact on whether it feels like that or not. Yeah. That's that's so profound, isn't it? And you you went in there with the mentality of, okay, it's not my go-to, but it's a hot meal. It's an okay choice, which it is, by the way. There is nothing, you know, overtly wrong with having McDonald's. I find that it's the mindset that you have around it that precipitates the problem, precipitates how bad that you feel when you eat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That was my experience anyways. And I think there is a lot to be said around 
eating something mindfully. I'm not saying it's possible to do all the time, but even some of the time. So I, particularly when I was feeling anxious around certain foods, the way I've got around the permission part is to say, you can have whatever you want, but if you're feeling stressed about it, that's the time when you need to stay with it and just try and notice and be curious. And that's been really helpful for me, I think, in the past. Yeah. Do you ever use food diaries with your clients? Yeah, occasionally. And um, not in the traditional sense where I'll get people to track and log everything that they eat, but I'll, I'll use a visual one where they will take a picture of what they're eating and to give me access to that. The reason why I do that, especially in the beginning, is because I want to get that insight into what people are eating on a on a day-to-day basis. I want to know roughly what portion size people are allowing themselves. And what that tells me is, is there any really obvious nutritional gaps in their diet that could be causing the binge eating? And I don't mean vitamins, minerals, the real small nutrients. I mean is this person eating enough? Are they taking in enough calories? How's their carbohydrate intake? You know, are they getting some, a couple of portions of protein a day or have they, you know, as, as you mentioned at the beginning that they have quite a warped idea of what good nutrition is and they have teeny tiny portions, one at one end of the day, another at the other end of the day, and yet are binging for days on afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's, it's incredible if we can just balance out food intake over the course of the day, the impact that that has on binge eating. Yeah. I'm also fascinated as well by how people present their food. I don't know if that's something you really notice. Just when you get the photo, like, is it something that's thrown together? Is it presented nicely? And I wonder just from person to person, what that means about our relationship with food, with the care that we take with even Mm. just how we put something on a plate. Yeah, it's something I've never really addressed, to be honest. Um, what, what I tend to see is just quite normal meals, normal portions of food. And I'm happy with that. I don't want people to be spending hours, you know, preparing this Instagram worthy meal. You know, food is just food and it doesn't have to look perfect all of the time. Mm-hmm. Do you ever recommend supplements to people in, when you're working with binge eating? Yeah, for sure. Especially if those big nutritional gaps exist in in the day Um, or if people have quite a limited food intake where they don't have a great variety, they tend to eat the same things over and over. I'll definitely recommend some specific vitamin and mineral supplements. Work with a lot of people who are vegetarian or vegan as well. And there is some specific um, vitamins that need to be, need to have more attention paid to them when you don't eat animal or or meat products. Mm -hmm. Are there any of the kind of popular styles of eating that give you great cause for concern that you see a lot that you think are harmful? I suppose I'm thinking of the big, when you mentioned like veganism there, most people go vegan for ethical reasons, sometimes health as well, Mm -hmm. but often it's around, um, yeah, around not wanting cruelty to animals, that kind of thing. But I was wondering, I suppose I'm thinking now about, lower carbohydrate diets other kinds of diets that what's the one a lot of people get put on that FODMAP diet these anti-inflammatory diets and all these types of things Mm -hmm. are there any that you see regularly misused that you think are causing people problems just with binge eaters particularly your client load 
Yeah. Well, firstly, with the low FODMAP diet, that is one that you definitely need to work with a dietitian on. Never undertake a low FODMAP diet by yourself. It is incredibly restrictive. And I know it's tempting to just bypass the professional side of things, but I just urge you not to because, um, yeah, you will drive yourself crazy trying to follow that by yourself. Um, so that's, you're right, that is one. Um, veganism, whenever I hear it, I have to always delve further into the rationale behind veganism. It is a nice little cloak that people can put on to mask their disordered eating because, hey, guess what? You get to cut out a whole load of foods when you become vegan. Um, low carb is is interesting. I don't come across it as much as I thought I would. Um, I do. One of my subspecialties is type two diabetes, though. So, um, in that case, it's 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 one of these areas that you need quite um, you need you need to find that balance, that fine line between restriction versus having a a well rounded healthy carbohydrate intake. Um, so. Not as, not as often as I, I would have expected, actually, in the general population. Mm-hmm. Interesting, actually, you mentioned type 2 diabetes, because I think that is the, the fear of a lot of binge eaters, I hear, when they talk about what they're doing to their health, this terror, they're going to develop type 2 diabetes. And I've worked with people who have been diagnosed as pre-diabetic, and also people who's, who say that they almost want a, a medical diagnosis because that will shock them into changing their food intake. And then when it doesn't, I think the shame that comes with that, when you have a medical condition that you know in theory could be improved or supported by diet, but you're struggling to do that. I mean, how would you approach somebody like that? What would you want to say to them? And again, I'm not expecting a, a magic pill here, but how would you speak to that? It is a very delicate area. And again, if anybody is interested in this, I have two podcast episodes on type 2 diabetes and binge eating for more, for more advice. Um, you're right. There is a significant level of, well, it's called diabetes distress when somebody is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And it's, it's, it's the stigma that's associated with this disease that you have brought on yourself, or at least that's what we're made to believe. That's not true. You know, binge eating often is a co-founder in, in the relationship with type 2 diabetes. It often is the link between depression and type 2 diabetes or some other mental health condition. And depression and, bin, um, depression and type 2 diabetes are, are a chicken and egg relationship kind of thing. There is definitely an increased prevalence in people with binge eating to have depression at the same time but it's unsure it's uncertain which one comes first Mm -hmm. I was wondering as well whether it could be harder for somebody uh, who's type 2 diabetic to stop binging because does it impact like your cravings for Mm -hmm. like the quick release carbohydrates the sweet foods to give you that sugar lift is that what people experience yeah um, that can certainly play a factor if somebody has type 2 diabetes and their blood sugars are poorly controlled, I would hope that they would be open to taking some medication. And in the UK, the first line medication is a medication called metformin. It's quite, um, it's, it's quite easy to take. It's, um, you know, it has very limited side effects. Um, so I would hope that if someone has poorly controlled 
blood sugars and type 2 diabetes, they will not be told to regulate their diet straight away. They will be told or advised to take medication. And then that leaves that person space to work with a professional like me to tweak the carbohydrate load that they get throughout the day. But at least their blood sugars are covered with medication. Mm -hmm. So along that vein, then, how do you feel about the statement, food is medicine? (laughs) Honestly, I used to believe it. And now I just think it's total trash. (laughs) Actually, when I did my eating disorder training, one of the things that we were told to do with our clients was to get them to write at the top of their food diary every day, food is medicine. Wow. That was just a couple of years ago. That's therapist training. Yeah. And that's why I say to anybody to approach their binge eating with compassion. You know, if someone's struggling with binge eating for more than a couple of years, they have been told that they need to diet or they need to cut out sugar or refined carbohydrates or that they just need more self-control. There's been a lot of poor, poor advice thrown at these people. And it is not your fault. Binge eating is only, as you said, it's only been a diagnosis since 2013. We're still learning about it. But what we know is is for certain is that it is a medical condition or it's a medical symptom that deserves attention and respect. It is not the individual's fault. Amen. You're preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sounds like a really lovely place, actually to bring this conversation to an end but I really appreciate you coming on today Joe. it's been a really interesting conversation I've learned a lot um, and I hope the viewers have found it interesting too I will add all your stuff below so that people can get in touch with you if they want to yeah super thanks Sarah and again thanks for having me it was great to chat with you and cut <laughs> I thought that was great Joe. I really yeah. think that would be extremely helpful for people yeah, there's so much information going. in that hmm? yeah we, we could have kept going oh always that's always yeah. i'm looking at the time and i'm going and do an intro as well i don't want if once it goes over the 40 minute mark people are less likely to click on it it's ridiculous it's a psychological thing when it says 30 minutes something yeah okay yeah people will I, halfway through i got really paranoid that i had lipstick on my teeth I didn't know that I did, did I? No, I don't think it's uh, not at all. <laughs> I don't wear it that often because like, you know, masks and stuff now, but um, I've noticed that in the past when I do wear it and then I'm talking a lot, it, t- it tends to just transfer. So I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I love your top, by the way. It's beautiful. Oh, thank really you. It's nice. very nice. Yeah. Um, so, okay, well, I better go because I've got a course in 15 minutes. So I need to get myself ready for that. Cool. Okay, I look forward to watching out for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, oh. I, yeah, I've never been on YouTube before, so cool. Oh, uh, yeah, well, you'll be out there, and hopefully, you know, the channel's growing steadily, so I think, you know, if I keep it up and I stay consistent. Yeah. Do you know um, do you know the Therapy in a Nutshell, Nutshell channel? No. She's great. She's another therapist, and she's got nearly half a million subscribers now, and she was looking for other therapists to collaborate with, um, and she said she'd be up for collaborating, and I was like, but so oh, I sent, she told me to send her an email. I sent her an email, but that was like three weeks ago. And I was like, I don't want to be the one chasing and going. Mm. I don't know. I might drop her some kind of message, but that would be really yeah. cool. That would help oh, yeah, grow the channel. But yeah, yeah. it's all good. I, mean, I think yeah. it's nice, actually, to some degree, having a small channel because you can do what you want. There's no, mm. ne- no expectations. You can just play and see what works. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people just like the familiar face. I think the fact that you're UK based is brilliant as well, because there's a lot of American, mm-hmm. you know, alternatives, but people don't always want that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right, All right yeah. Joe. Well, thank you very much. And you know, I might even be able to quickly record the intro really fast now and I might get it up. Yeah. You never know. All right, All right. then. Well, All I right. will okay. speak to you soon. All right. Chat soon. Okay, bye. bye.